The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. I want to bid you a warm welcome this morning and good morning. Don't look outside right now. There's some white stuff coming down out of the sky. Oh, yes. Yeah, November 11 was the first, but that was a huge snowstorm, wasn't it? Yeah, I was actually in South America at that time, so I missed uh, I missed the fun. But uh, I came back. Actually, I came back the 12th or the 13th or something. So I came back to the mess that was the result of that. But as the snow comes down from heaven, right, reminds us that we've been washed whiter than snow in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are grateful for that that little truth. All right. Turn our Bibles to Deuteronomy 32, please. We go from two hymns to a song, but don't you worry, I am not going to sing it for you. In fact, there is no tune here for us. Deuteronomy 32, the song of Moses. I'd like to go back to though verse, uh, chapter 31, verse 19, to just remind ourselves. And I don't think I'm going to read through the whole song today. This chapter is almost 50 verses, I think. Um, but notice verse uh, 3119, 31.19 says, Now therefore write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. So when they sing this song, this is self-accusatory here. At least it will be in the future. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and my and break my covenant. So they are going to sing this song and teach it to the children of Israel as a testimony against them. Now we turn to the song itself in chapter 32. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 now. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright, is he who would not who would not want to be related to this god this god verse 5 they have corrupted themselves they are not his children because of their blemish a perverse and crooked generation do you thus deal with the lord or o foolish and unwise people is he not your father who bought you has he not made you and established you remember the days of old consider the years of many generations Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. So, pause there for a second. Reflecting on Acts 17, God set the appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. He did that in part for the nation of Israel. He certainly did for the nation that. And they have that portion in that particular place on the face of the earth. Verse 10, He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock, and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle, and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine, the blood of the grapes. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese. 
Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us that that rock was who? Christ. Verse 16, they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons. Sound familiar again? 1 Corinthians 10. Not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, He spurned them because of the provocation of His sons and daughters. And He said, I will hide My face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked Me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved Me to anger by their foolish idols. Again, there in 1 Corinthians 10. Remember, are we stronger than he? Are we going to provoke him to jealousy? It says in verse 21, But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. Now reflect on Romans chapter 11. Paul says God is saving the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy so that some of them may be saved in the end and their fullness then will become riches for the world. What a wise program God has put into place. For a fire, Verse 22, For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger. Devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction, I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say our hand is high And it is not the Lord who has done all this. Oh, but it is what the Lord has done. We'll pause our reading there and pick up next time at verse number 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We almost finished our study of chapter 10 last week. We've touched up on that this morning during the Sunday school hour. But I invite you to chapter 11 this morning as we enter into chapter 11 through 14, we come to what is one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament. Not necessarily for the reason that it's impossible to do exegesis on it or to understand what it says, Part of the challenge is because of our distance from the culture of the time. So, uh, things were done in the first century in Corinth and in the Greek and Roman world that would be far easier for us to understand if we grew up there. Just like somebody from another country might, if you dropped them into the middle of Ann Arbor, uh, they might be very confused about why do we do certain things the way that we do uh, but after they were here for a while, they would learn and uh, grow in, in understanding that. The passage is also difficult to understand, having to do with the roles of men and women and head coverings and these things, because in the Western culture in the last 50 plus years, we have seen the rise of feminism and strident opposition to the patriarchy. If you've been reading anything in recent um news and literature, uh, that word patriarchy comes up over and over again. And it is a target of uh, the neo-Marxist movement and others because it's convenient, basically, to achieve the ends that they are trying to achieve. And so as a result, not only of the cultural distance, but especially of of the culture today in the West, Christians feel tremendous pressure to be shy about the teaching of the Bible at this point or not to embrace it at all. 
Now, let me give you three thoughts about the opposition, the direction that it comes from, or how it's applied to uh, our, our understanding of the Bible, or not, as it turns out. In the first place, opposition arises because patriarchy is frequently, and that's what, that's what op- opponents would say this is. This is the patriarchy. This is the origin of it in Western society and Christianity. They would say that patriarchy is to be criticized because it results in many bad things that happen to women. I saw a graphic, an infographic, where these, uh, this idea was put, you know, patriarchy. And then off of it were little lines and bubbles of all the bad things that happen because of, of patriarchy. And they included such things as objectification of women, abuse, unequal pay, rape culture, stereotypes, shaming language, and things of that nature. Now, those sinful behaviors that I've just listed are not, in fact, part of Christian teaching or correct Christian practice. They may be the part of uh, the practice of, of um, professing religious people or of some who like to take power trips, but those are not Christian people. So what is being criticized is secular patriarchy, not Christian patriarchy. This is what is identified as objectionable. Yet, the true faith in Christ is often wrongly blamed for the sinful practices of such people. None of these behaviors that I've listed is even contemplated in Christianity. It's not appropriate for church or society or a home that operates according to biblical principles. So some of the opposition to Christianity under the heading of patriarchy is misplaced because it's it's actually aiming at secular teaching not at christian teaching okay so don't let your you know friends uh just kind of lump everything together i'm trying to teach you where the opposition comes from and where it's headed or where it's pointed at so you can put it in its right place secondly another factor of opposition to the idea of patriarchy is that uh, some of it has to do with actually what Christianity does teach. It's accurately placed in that it is aimed at the right target, but of course we believe it's incorrectly aimed there in the first place. It shouldn't be aimed at the Christian faith, sometimes because of a misunderstanding. So, for example, the Bible does teach that women, wives are to be subject to their husbands, and husbands are to be the head of their homes. That's a plain teaching of Scripture. Another example is the Bible very clearly prohibits women pastors in the church. First Timothy 2.12 is very, very clear about that. And so the battle against Christian patriarchy is from those who, who want to upend it and establish another order of things. Now, what is that other order that they want? Well, it's not actually total equality, exact equality. In fact, what it is is to highlight from our, what we're talking about today with patriarchy, it's actually matriarchy. Matriarchy, that's the goal. So, this arises out of Genesis 3.16 where God told the man and the woman there's going to be this conflict. And to the woman... He said not only is there going to be child-bearing pain, but there's also going to be this desire in you toward your husband. And that doesn't mean an, an intimate desire or want. That means the desire to exercise authority over your husband. And, he, and God said, and he will rule over you. That, that uh, is in Genesis 3.16, uses the same idea that you find in Genesis 4.7, where Cain is told by God, sin crouches at the door and its desire is toward you. It wants to master you. Its desire is toward you. Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be to master over your husband. But God said that's not the order that it's going to be in. So, I point this out as a it's kind of a thesis, if you will. But I think it's there's a good reason to believe that it's true based on what we see out in society today. There are those who want to establish not merely total equality, 
which can't be done. We know that from Scripture. But they want to establish a matriarchy where women hold the levers of power instead of men. This will supposedly solve all of the problems that society has had under the rule of men in our culture. Certain statistics show that Western society has moved strongly in the matriarchal direction even as people don't recognize it. Men are pictured as you know, lummoxes. Too many waste their young manhood doing little productive or little that's manly. Women have had in some ways much higher privilege and achievement in many areas. Now, you might be shocked that I would actually say that. Can pastor back that up? Well, yes, I can. And this may be, this may be something that you learn from. This is just statistics. Take them for what they are. That shows, these statistics might unravel your notion that females are inferior in Western culture to males. That's been the, that's been the mantra for decades, right? That men are super privileged and women are kept down and, and all of that. That's no longer the case. Things have, things have switched. Let me show you just a couple of stats that might highlight in your mind this idea. For every, and this is kind of a, for every 100 girls, it compares what happens to men or boys in a comparable circumstance. So for 100, every 100 girl babies who die in the first 27 days of life, 126 boys die. For every, and I've just selected a few of these. There's dozens of them. For every 100 women who die by opioid overdose, 318 men die. For every 100 women who die on the job, 1,171 men die on the job. Does that sound like equality? For every 100 females in their late teenage years who die of homicide, there are 642 males. I have five pages of this stuff. Okay, For every 100 female military personnel who died during Operation Enduring Freedom, 4,506 men died. For every 100 girls who repeat kindergarten, 145 boys repeat kindergarten. For every 100 college-bound high school girl seniors in the top 10% of her class, there are only 79 boys in that same top 10% of their class. You've heard a lot about STEM education and women, girls, science, technology, engineering, math. For, and you, and you, you th- you'd think from what you've heard that women are far outstripped by men in some of these areas. Listen to this. For every 100 college-bound high school girls who take AP honors courses in math, there are only 82 boys. For every 100 college-bound high school senior girls who take AP honors courses in natural sciences, there are 79 boys. For every 100 girls ages 3 to 17 diagnosed with communication disorders, speech problems, language, voice problems, there are 168 boys. For every 100 girls 3 to 5 years old who are served under public schools with Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, every 100 girls in that age group, there are 228 boys. Does it sound like boys are more privileged than girls in these areas? For every 100 girls in K-12 public schools that are classified as having specific learning disability, there are 207 boys. For every 100 women enrolled in U.S. colleges, at all levels, there are 75 men enrolled. Who's going to college more, men or women? For every 100 women enrolled in U.S. graduate schools, there are 71 men. For every 100 women who earn a bachelor's degree, there are 74 men. For every 100 women who earn a master's degree from U.S. colleges and universities, there are 65 men. For every 100 women who earn a Ph.D., there are 85 men. Did you know these these pieces of information before? For every 100 women who are homeless, there are 156 men. For every 100 females in local jails in the U.S., there are 614 males. For every 100 females in state and federal prisons, there are 1,314 men 
in those prisons. I told you that the matriarchy is upon us. So, what was true and what you're being told is true by the media is not true. Okay? These issues are very relevant in our society today and we have, we have to stand up for what the Bible teaches. So, you have opposition to Christianity which is misplaced on this idea of patriarchy because it's actually aimed at secular patriarchy. You have... You have opposition to Christianity and this area of matriarchy that is indeed uh, attached to the actual teaching of Christianity. And I've just kind of gone off on a little rabbit trail to help educate you about what's happening in our society so that you see that this is the case. And then thirdly, their opposition to Christianity in this area of male headship comes around about because of a misunderstanding of the blessings that God intends for a young woman. She is, for example, protected by her father and brothers until she is given into the arms of a suitor who takes her as his wife and becomes her provider and protector. Her estate is in her father's house. That's not meant to harm her, but rather to protect her from the male supremacists who lack self-control and often use their higher strength, their bigger, greater strength to take advantage of women. The practical outworking of these three lines of opposition is that men and women have been taught doctrine that is at best sideways to Scripture and typically the entire opposite of Scripture. Let me say that again. You have been taught a doctrine which is opposite of Scripture with regard to men and women in the world. I have called it a doctrine very for very particular reason because it is a doctrine. You know, we think we hear the word doctrine and we think, oh, that's what you hear when you go to church. No, that's what you hear when you turn on the news. That's what you read when you read a newspaper or magazine that's published by secular publishers. That's what you learn when you go to school, secondary school, primary school, or college, or graduate school. You learn doctrine. Feminist philosophy, for instance, teaches a doctrine that is in direct competition with Scripture. You know, when you hear somebody say, the wedding vows should not include what Ephesians 5 says about the husband as head of home and wife submitting to her husband. Take those out. They are teaching a false doctrine, a bad doctrine, an unbiblical doctrine. It's still doctrine, however. When you hear about egalitarianism or Christian feminism, there is such a thing as that. There are These are doctrines preached by women and men, too, who are opposed to Scripture's plain teaching. What you hear in school or learn on the news is often underlaid with doctrine, presuppositions, philosophies. And the Bible warns us to beware of those false teachings. Just like, you know, you don't have to go to a church or turn on a televangelist to be aware of bad doctrine. You need to be aware of bad doctrine all the time. Matthew 16.12, the Lord told the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which they initially misunderstood, but then they came to realize, oh, he's talking about the bad doctrine of the Pharisees. Or 2 Peter 2.1, even as there were false teachers among the people in the Old Testament, there are also false teachers or will be among you. And that's what we have today. Even in the broader so-called church, we have that going on. People making a defense of women in roles in the church which God has not designed for them or in the home which God has not designed for them or wherever. Another factor that complicates our study of issues like this is about differences between men and women is that the Bible teaches that in some areas there are no differences between men and women. For example, Galatians 3.28 teaches us that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. Okay? So it teaches us that distinctions between different races, social statuses, and sexes become much less significant. Now, while those distinctions remain true and facts, 
They are not the most significant way in which people are categorized. It doesn't matter if you're high in the social status ladder or low. What matters is, are you in Christ or are you out of Christ? That's really what Galatians 3.28 is teaching and saying when you come into Christ, you come into a glorious company of people where these distinctions are no longer at all the most significant ways in which people are looked at. You don't look at people with regard to race and money and social status and male or female or whatever. We, we have a, a, a certain equality in worth, in spirituality, in value, in intellect, because we're all united to Christ and share equally in eternal life. Now, this truth confuses some interpreters and induces them to therefore throw out all distinctions based on similarities in these some few areas. In other words, you say, well, if we're the same with regard to Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female, there must be no distinctions at all and everybody is, is even Stephen. We can, you know, women can do anything in the church. Men can do anything in the church. And uh, in the home, the roles are totally washed out. They're all flattened. There's no, there's no difference. But that's not true because such distinctions are still used as the basis of various biblical instructions. For example, men and women are assigned different roles in the church and in the home. Since God cannot lie and the Bible is His truth, we know that there is no contradiction between neither male or female and between the teaching of the husband as the head of the wife. These two things must be both true at the same time. That's what we believe. That's what we teach. Okay, Both can be true simultaneously. You might not understand it yet, but it's true nonetheless. God has not contradicted Himself in these principles. Bottom line, as far as our introduction, is this. We're talking about learning the Bible, which is the word of God. As Christians, we are loyal to that Word when we take it, believe it, and obey it. We are betraying that faith to the extent that we undercut any of the Bible's teachings, including the hard teachings on things like the relationships of men and women. So, very unpopular what I'm talking about, but this is why we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, and when we come to these chapters, we deal with them because we have to. And I know you have a lot of questions about that. And these are issues where it would be tragic not to cover them because these things are going on so... I mean, the society's full of these things. So why would we skip the things that are most relevant in our cultural discussions with, with people? We must not. We must think about these things. We must think deeply about these things and get our heads wrapped around what Scripture teaches on them. So, we're not going to get into the whole passage today because it's too long, but I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork with what we've done, plus also just kind of introduce, talk about the summary of of the section, what Paul's talking about here. So look at verse 2 of chapter 11. Remember, we we pushed verse 1 into chapter 10 because that's where it belongs. So we start really chapter 11 with verse 2. And it says this, Now I praise you, brothers, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now you've got to know when you... And I didn't put this in my notes, but I should have perhaps. When you read this passage your head is going to spin because of all the heads that are here. Okay, You have the head of the, 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 the man, the head of Christ, the head of the woman, which speaks about like their authority, the one over them. And then you have head in terms of, you know, la cabeza, okay, in Spanish, the head. Uh, and so every, you know, a, a, a woman who, or a man who prays having his head covered, dishonors his head, his authority, which is what the text told us, told us Christ. Okay, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, her authority, 
For that is one and the same as if her head, her literal head, were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Now notice, if you believe in evolution, this doesn't make any sense at all. No sense at all whatsoever. Uh, by the way, if you believe in evolution, how did, how did separate sexes evolve to so perfectly work together to produce the next generation of the same race? It just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, don't get me started on that. Verse 10, For this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And here's probably the, one of the most uh, difficult little phrases of the Scripture. Because of the angels. Because of the angels. What do we do with that? Well, hang on. We'll get there. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. You've heard some of the feminists say, I don't need a man. I don't need any... Well, you needed a man to get started. That's for sure. And if you want to... If you, can I say it this way and you won't be too offended? If you want to promote your sorry agenda to the next generation, you're going to have to have a man to have a kid to do that to. Okay? So don't... Don't say that. We are interdependent on one another. Verse 12, For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Boy, now we've jumped to hair. Wow. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Okay, so I'm just going to give kind of a summary quickly of the differences between men and women from these verses and then talk about them a bit and we'll see how far we get. So the Bible says the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man. It says men are to pray with their head uncovered, but women are to pray with their head covered. It says... Thirdly, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of the man. Fourthly, man is not from woman, but woman is from man. Fifth, man was not created for the woman, but woman for the man. Sixth, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Seven, I think we're at. Man is dependent on woman, and woman is dependent on man. I've got two more. Woman came from man, but man comes through a woman. And then, finally, long hair on a man is a dishonor to him, but a woman's long hair is her glory. So, let's just... I've gone through those, just listed them. Now we go back and we visit each one again and try to give just a little more explanation, some more than others. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. That's verse number 3. Okay? The Bible uses the terms man and woman here in a generic way. What I mean is we're not just talking about husbands and wives. okay? Not only them, but there's a, spe a special application in that case. A man does not have to be married to fall under this command. Consequently, a single man could violate what is talked about here because he's under the headship of Christ. So a single man can violate this. He doesn't have to be married to violate it. And I, I, you, you probably say, well, that's obvious. But I say that because some have asked the question, well, what about a woman? What about the woman? Is she married or not married? Well, just like the man doesn't have to be married to follow or violate this command, a woman doesn't have to be married to follow or violate these instructions either. So a woman can be married or not and still would be required to observe the teaching of this passage. So just because a woman is single, for example, doesn't mean that she can say, well, I'm single so I don't have to have long hair. I can crop my hair to a, a more of a male style of haircut. That's not, that's not how I read this passage. I trust it's not how you read it either. I take it, therefore, that the woman in this passage does not have to be a wife. 
The complication does come in because in Greek, the, woman, the word for woman, gune or gunaikos, can be used for a woman or for a wife, depending on the context. Now, as far as what, about, what happens with a, a woman who's not married, in biblical thought, she would be considered in her father's house. I alluded to that earlier. And therefore, is under his ship. So she's never, she's never without somebody to think about how do I apply this passage, either to my father or to my husband. Obviously a little different in both cases, but still, the kind of cultural arrangement that we have now with women going off and being single and by themselves for years and without the provision and protection of a man is not seen to be feasible in the first century. They just wouldn't think about, again, this is the cultural distance from now to 2,000 years ago. In a, in a culture that didn't have the wealth that we have, that didn't have the uh, law enforcement that we have, that didn't have the stability that we have, that was agrarian, uh, the situation was totally different than what we have now. And so it was just not feasible to think of a woman as a free agent entirely in the, um, in the first century era of the church. And so... The thought to me seems to be either she's in her father's house or in her husband's house. And that we see that from earlier on in the Old Testament as well, the kind of instructions there regarding men and women and how they relate. Now the passage does especially apply to a married woman and her husband. The married woman is to show submission to her own husband and not to other husbands in the church. That said, however, this teaching that we're looking at in chapter 11 will inevitably affect how a wife relates to other women or other men in the church and of course vice versa that it will connect to how men relate with other women other women not their wife in the church as well okay so that's just kind of talking about the ideas here a little bit the second difference between men and women has to do with praying with head covered or uncovered See that in verse 4 and 5. If a man prays or prophesies having his head covered, he dishonors his head, that is his authority, but it's the opposite for the woman. Now, I'm going I'm to try to help you understand, not this morning, but later, how it is that the principles that are taught about here can be applied today, but that the particular practices of wearing a head covering for a woman are not necessary today because the principles can be put into practice in another way. For, uh, you know, let me just mention, there are some, a minority I would say, of Christian denominations that believe that head coverings are still required for women when they come to worship and, or to pray. So you would be wearing a hat or a shawl, or some kind of uh, head covering in those kinds of churches. So, and there are very variations on the theme. I mean, some some churches would hold that a woman, when she ministers, like she plays the piano or sings, in front of the church, must wear a head covering. Others, if she's praying, others would just say all the time, flat out, must wear a head covering when she comes in to the church. So that's just to give you an idea of the landscape. I don't believe that's to, that's the case because the way I understand this uh, matter of culture and pr- biblical principle. Let me give you a, a, a kind of quickie illustration of how these two things are different. The biblical teaching is to greet one another with a holy kiss. But we have never done that as a practice in our culture. I mean, mainly. It's always been a handshake. The principle is a warm affectionate, brotherly, or sisterly greeting to your fellow believers. Put into practice in our culture, and we feel there's not been any sin in this, not by by kissing, but by warm greeting. You know the difference between a warm greeting and a cold greeting, right? Yeah, you've all had it, where the greeting is cold as ice. Uh, you know, there's no smile, there's no warmth there, uh, you know, no handshake even, you know, before pandemics, of course. Um, But we apply the teaching of that greet one another with a holy kiss in a different way and yet maintain the same principle. Right? So the principle is timeless. 
the exact way in which it's implemented is different. But if you come down, I've invited our brother to come down to South America with me sometime. The next time I'm able to go, whoever knows when that might be. But you would find the culture is a little different there. And uh, very, very different. And so you have to decide. It's kind of funny when you, you go uh, in a church and you don't know what to do. Like how to greet somebody until you know, they start coming up to you and greeting you with a, a sort of kiss on one or both cheeks. And then, okay, so I know how that... But then when a missionary... It's funny because the missionaries are in two cultures at one time. And so if they come into our home or I go into their home, you don't know whether to say hi or shake hands or, or do the customary greeting of the country in which you are. I think that's kind of the, maybe the practice. Where are we? In Chile. Okay, well, greet the Chilean way. Oh, we're, our, we're in the United States. We'll greet in the United States way, uh, even though you've greeted one another in both ways before. So it's kind of a strange thing. But uh, the principle is that warm, Christian, affectionate greeting implemented in different ways. And now we're not even shaking hands because you know we think we could catch a deadly virus that way. Uh, I say we're not. Some of us are. But you have to watch that the warmness of your greetings to one another does not subside because of a virus. Okay? Just a principle we want to maintain. So, we'll get to that as to how we can put the principles into practice without necessarily having to wear a head covering. And this gets to be a hot issue because people will say, well, look, there you're saying the Bible talks about a head covering. It's a cultural thing. You just throw it out. So, why can't I take what Paul says about women not being pastors, it's a cultural thing, and just throw it out. Well, we'll try to navigate that a little more carefully uh, when we get to that detail of that portion. Uh, The Bible says man is the image and glory of God. God created man in His image, and then derivatively a woman from the man, and that's what uh, verses 7 and 8 talk about, those those ideas. Um, You know, God created Adam first from the dust, and from spirit. You know, so then he created the woman using the man. So actually the woman comes from kind of better stock in a sense. I mean, uh, you know, if your wife tells you you're acting like dirt, say, well, consider the source. I mean, <laughs> that's where I came from. <laughs> no, so uh, it's interesting how the creation account gives that and Paul brings it up at this point. Now, it says the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head in verse number 10. That's another one of the differences where the man is not supposed to have that. And it says because of the angels, that interesting verse. So, this, as I said above, this principle can be put into practice in different ways depending on the prevailing cultural practice. See, we've inherited a culture that we didn't create Kind of like we inherited a pandemic that we didn't create. It just, it's upon us. We might wish, as I said in the email last night, that it was different than it is. You know, if I were in charge, I could have done it differently. Nobody would have gotten sick. You know, no, we're not, we're just, we're just nothings down here at the bottom of society, okay? We're not in the high places of power. So we just have to deal with the situation as it's been given to us. That's all we can do. Um, and so with culture, you know, you're dropped into the middle of a culture that has hundreds of years of development and you just are learning the features of it and, you know, uh, kiss or handshake. Well, just we were, we were raised up in the culture where it was handshakes. Why? I don't know, because of the 1918 pandemic or something. They stopped kissing each other. That's not what happened, but, you know, you could imagine how something could shift like that. And so you're dropped into the middle of a culture. That's how they do things. And so you have to say, how can I apply the biblical principles in that culture without violating the Word of God and and, um, that sort of thing? So that's that. Um, Then we talk about the interdependence of men and women. Uh, You know, when uh, verse 11 says, neither is man independent of woman, that should entirely undercut any superiority complex that a man has. Boy, and I mean, boy, your mother raised you up from diapers on up. And she took care of you when you couldn't do anything. Fed you, changed you, clothed you, put you to bed, got you up in the morning and everything else. 
you are not independent of a woman. And this gives us great cause for respect to the women in our lives and generally in society. Certainly does not allow us to undercut the value of bearing and raising children, which women do in our society. And of course, the feminist movement is actually trying to undercut that. Combined with you know, the population control movement and all of that, women don't want to have their careers interrupted. And we don't want to produce too many kids because we'll deplete the earth of its resources and then we'll all die from that. That's not what God says. God says be fruitful and multiply. And I think that still applies today to us. We're not to be scared of having a family. Um, And then women uh, can look at verse number 12. For as woman came from man, and so man also comes through Woman. So there's that interdependency there. No woman can say, I have no need of a man. That's just a secular and sinful idea. And then finally, we look at this uh, business about the hair, and I'll close with this. We'll have to pick up the next time on page five of the notes. Uh, I'll just say it this way long hair on a man is a dishonor to him, and a woman's long hair is her glory. Bottom of page four. That's referring to verses 14 and 15. Paul appeals in those verses, look at what he does. Does not even nature itself teach you? So he appeals to nature. What what is nature? Nature is our innate sense and observation of how the world works. What percentage of women grow bald over the course of their lifetime, gentlemen? Very little. Something about, uh, something about the body chemistry, the estrogen or whatever it is that it causes their hair to, retain, to be retained. Thus a woman in her hair, her hair is a lasting symbol of her femininity and beauty. Not so for the gentleman. The result, really. The result is that men typically have shorter hair and that marks them as male. And women have longer hair and that marks them as female. As an extension of this, I take us to the principle of Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. That men... What what does that verse say? That men are not to wear what pertains to a woman and women are not not to wear what pertains to a man. In other words, you think the Bible is out of date? No, it's talking about transvestism, cross dressing back 3,500 years ago. That was a thing? Yeah, because human nature was the same thing that it is now as it was then. And so, yes, it was a perversion that people exhibited and exercised. Because of that principle, men should not wear their hair in a female way, nor women wear their hair in a male way. Such practice of hair wearing, long or short, women or men, is a natural thing. Now, what defines the proper hair length? It's not a ruler with inches on it, but a clear distinction between male and female hairstyles. There's going to be some debate in, in different cultures on the particulars. You know, does it have to be shoulder length? Does a bob count? Uh, you know, Hillary, help me out with all the different ha- names of hairstyles. Um, you know, what, what works and what doesn't? There's, there's some room for debate about this, but what Paul teaches here is that a man and a woman's hairstyle is not a man in a woman's hairstyle is not honorable to him because he's confusing the design of God. What, I'll just say it this way, maybe offensive, but I don't intend to give, I tend, intend to teach. What real man wants to look like a woman? Looking or behave, and there's nothing wrong with looking like a woman for a woman. A woman is beautiful as a woman, but a man is not beautiful or handsome as a woman. Looking or behaving effeminately for a man is sin. Did you know that? The Bible teaches that. For a woman to act feminine is glorious. It's glorious. It's beautiful. On the other hand, it's shameful for a woman to look like a man. I mean, you know. When you see a woman with a butch haircut, what does it mean? It's clear. They're saying something with how they make their appearance to look. 
But if she has a very, very feminine hairstyle, she makes it clear that she's in line with God's design and does not want to be like a man with a masculine hairstyle. The larger principle here is God has designed men to be men and women to be women because men are different and they have a purpose in God's economy and women are different and they have a purpose in God's economy. And He wants us to submit to that design and accept it and embrace it. You know, The society says this, but I'll say it with a different kind of meaning. Embrace who you are. If you're a man, be a man. If you're a woman, be a woman. If you're a man, be a masculine man. Be a strong man. If you're a woman, be a feminine woman. Be a beautiful woman. Okay? And that's what God wants us to do. And so, there is a very important teaching here in this chapter about the role of men and women. Doctrine here. And yes, we're running up against the doctrine of the world. But where does the Bible not do that? Where does the Bible not do that? Is, is it we... We say the Bible can tell us about salvation and it can tell us about future things and it can tell us about Israel, but don't tell me about how I'm supposed to be as a man or a woman. No, that's my business. No, that's God's business because He made you what He made you and He gives you the parameters in which you're supposed to operate. Oh, there's lots of freedom there. Yeah, certainly. And uh, But there are certain things that are to be observed. And so... We'll get into this more next time, okay? So hold, hold off. If you have any questions, I welcome those questions. Uh, if you have direct questions, I welcome those questions. If you have criticisms, that's fine. Just give them in love and uh, back them up with information. You know, don't, don't complain that I gave you these statistics here. These are shocking. What's happening in our society? And we need to be observant of that. So um, come well prepared and let's talk. And let's reason together about these matters. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for giving us the Word of God and how it teaches us and instructs us in the things that we need to know. And Lord, thank You for the Gospel above all. Thank You for Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us. It helps us to work through all of these other smaller issues that we face as believers in, in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that is there any here who don't know Christ, are there any in our lives whom we're sharing the Gospel with that You will help us to make it clear to them and show them how believing in the Scriptures is eminently reasonable, even in areas like this where there is much controversy. And thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.